every Monday night from 10 o'clock until midnight. It may not be what you were hoping for, but hey, it's the next best thing. Hey kids, I'm Michelle Carlo, host of Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo and Radio Free Brooklyn with an important announcement. Radio Free Brooklyn programming is created by independent hosts and producers, and the views expressed by these hosts and guests on their programs do not represent the views of Radio Free Brooklyn, its staff, or management. Thanks for listening and enjoy. This is what Brooklyn sounds like. Welcome to Objection to the Rule, live on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm Max Carter, here with co-host Emily. Hello. And a special guest today, who was just helping us out, figuring out the board, Aaron. Hello. Great to have you both here. Uh, this week we'll be talking about a lot of really uh, impactful news. <laughs> uh, everything from historic homelessness rates in New York City, a possibly generationally defining trade deal with China, the pros and cons of integrating smart technology further into our lives, and more. But how are we today? I mean, it's rainy out. I was expecting spring. What's what's the week been like for y'all? Um, yeah, weather confusion, um, most of all, but New Yorkers love nothing more than talking about the weather. Um, <laughs> always. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, excited to be here, out of the rain, at the very least. Any yeah. big news on, on everyone's front? Do we... Um, I'm running the boards for the first time. <laughs> Trying not to mess up, so... <laughs> but yeah, you're doing great. You're doing great. Oh, thank you so much, Aaron. Yeah. Awesome. Well, why don't we just dive in to some local news to start ourselves off. This week, we saw the New York Supreme Court rule in favor of Lyft and Juno drivers in support of higher wages. We read reports of skyrocketing homelessness and heard an outcry from some residents over the increasingly smart world we live in. Emily, can you talk us through some of these stories? I would love to. Um, quick note, the the New York Supreme Court actually ruled against Lyft and Juno. <sighs> yeah. So let's against dive Lyft into and that. Juno, yes. but in support of their drivers, In support correct? of the drivers, okay, correct, yeah. which I guess is like if you define them as separate entities, right? Or it's like boss. A employee. complicated yeah, relationship, very complicated to be relationship. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's dive in with that one. Um, so a New York Supreme Court judge has ruled against a petition filed by Lyft and Juno that attempted to block new pay rules in New York City that have set the driver minimum wage at $17.22 an hour. So Lyft has long, at least like in, in optics sort of um, ways, has long positioned itself as a more conscientious <laughs> choice to Uber, for example, allowing riders to tip their drivers years before Uber offered the option, about mm. like five years. Um, but, you know, this current situation certainly goes that message. Um Lyft claimed that the new minimum wage will put uh, it at a disadvantage to Uber and hurt competition, but the judge obviously disagreed. Um, so how do we feel about the excuses that companies use to avoid paying their employees more money, right? Like this whole argument about competition. I mean, I work in the service industry and I receive a tipped wage, so I feel somewhat of a resonance with this issue. Uh, I, th I think that 
um, you know, as a server, the tips that we are receiving, which almost are an expected part of the dining experience for customers, uh, outweigh the um, the the uh, gains that I would have from a minimum wage. So on one side, I think, you know, Lyft and Juno drivers and anybody who's uh, driving with a rideshare app um, is benefiting from tips, but I don't think that it is at the level uh, of the service industry as far as food in terms of um, like regularity and, uh, you know, consistency of like 18 to 20% tips. So it really doesn't close the gap that they would be losing um, if they were to be assigned a, a tipped minimum wage, which mm. is lower than the normal minimum wage. Interesting. Right. Yeah. The whole tip minimum wage and all that stuff is a very complicated issue um, for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, what surprises me about it is that um, there have been, there's been research that if your employees are happier, they will be more dedicated to their work and be happier workers and just do more stuff. So the idea of trying to give excuses for not like if it, if it really is an excuse and it sounds like once us, like, it's really detrimental to their ability to keep employees. Like that's just generally how it is. I mean, I work in an industry that is uh, chronically underpaid just basis of it being a smaller industry. And it's a, it's a real struggle. People Mm -hmm. don't really keep stay in their jobs for more than a year or two before they jump to another company in the industry. And what's interesting about um, app based um, companies and employees specifically is that it's, the idea of like unionization, for example, or like getting together and t- just talking face to face with your fellow employees is really hard to accomplish because mm-hmm. if you if you only know who else is working it through the app controlled by the employer, like there are there are lots of ways that the employer can just prevent you from knowing who else is your coworker. Yeah, it's really interesting. And let's just see real fast. Rachel was going to call in. Let's see if she's on the line. Hi, Rachel. Um, have, hi, Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Hey. So I had a, one other thing I wanted. I hopped in here a little later. I don't know if we touched upon this yet. Um, one other thing uh, I can about Lyft and Uber versus other tipped, um, uh, well, you know, sort of jobs, is that um, you know if you're a server in a restaurant or a bartender or something like that, um, you you are hopefully being tipped. Um, right. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Operative um, word. But you're not you're not paying. Um, they rent the bar to, um, you know, work there for the night, for example. Um, I, I can maybe explain a little for, uh, further. Um, I have a friend who drives Uber in New York, um, where New York, um, the thing about um, Lyft, Uber, all these apps, if you're going to be a driver for hire, you are subject to the same regulations in New York as any cab driver is. So you're held to the same professional standard. You have to have a TLC license. So you're a professional driver. I have a friend who drives Uber, and he said um, he actually has to drive, given the contract that he has, um, he has to drive at least three days a week before he starts actually earning any money. Because wow. he's renting a car. Um, he doesn't own a medallion. A lot of it, The cost of actually owning your own TLC medallion is outrageously right. high. Right. Yeah. Um, a lot of people rent a car or a cab. Well, you know, that's how they and that in order to drive. That's how I think a majority of TLC drivers do it. It's not like outside of New York City, certain um, places. Um, like I had a cousin who lived in New Jersey who drove for Uber 
you know, for a little while, and he just used his own vehicle. And he basically, he said it was great. I, that's how I paid for my car payments. He didn't need special licensure. He just used his own vehicle. He didn't have to rent a separate vehicle or purchase a special license or mm-hmm. anything like that. I think he had to pass some basic drug screening and, and a background check. Um, but so if you're driving in New York, you might the thing, the difference is those just make a huge difference because, you know, you, you're already paying to be able to work the, the job of Uber driver. Right. Then you start, you know, if you're, um, if I'm waiting tables somewhere, I'm not paying you to right. have access to the tables to serve them, to provide the service at them. There's a big difference there. Um, that's a cost, an overhead cost that Uber and Lyft drivers have that other um, service um, industry workers don't have. There's mm-hmm. a big mm-hmm. difference there. So those tips go a lot longer. And um, if the minimum, you know, it's, it, it, so if they aren't, you know, it, to treat them as um, tipped workers um, on the same level as they have um, other people in the service industry, it, I don't think it's a really fair comparison because they have certain costs just to like, right. just to begin to earn the money that other workers don't have. It's, it's, they're, the only thing they really have in common with other service industry professionals is that they're they may earn tips. Right. The, the, what it what they just to get going to have to work three days to drive three full days in a week to begin to earn money. Is, that's crazy. I mean, <laughs> that's that's it's it's tough. But yeah. um, and my friend told me he said that's the contract. He's like not the best contract. It's what I'm involved in right now. But I you know hearing information like that i don't see how that really compares to another service industry worker that's something that i think needs to be taken into consideration yeah absolutely i mean i don't think you can you can i agree you can't really compare the industries at all um especially just given the as we were saying before the the expected tip uh on a food service workers wage versus the you know gratuity as it were uh, that's added on Lyft and Uber and whatnot. I mean, you know, personally, even though I work in the food service industry, I am not tipping 20%, honestly, on rideshare apps um, because I, I do expect them to be receiving a more substantial wage that should be covering as everybody should be receiving a wage yeah. that covers their costs. And it's also, it feels like it's a, it's, and as far as transparency as a user, I don't really understand the mechanics of how much they make versus how much like Lyft or Uber makes Absolutely. off of them per ride. And I think where at least in the food service industry, I think like most customers understand like here's money, I'm gonna leave cash. So yes. you you know like you know I know that's like helpful quote unquote or whatever. Like but I think there's a lack of understanding. How, like what you just said about three days before you start seeing a profit. Yeah, right. That's not I don't think um, common knowledge. No at all right yeah um well okay next topic on the local news front um so the coalition for the homeless released their annual report this week and found that there were a record number of people living in new york city homeless shelters Mm. according to its website homelessness in the city has reached the highest level since the great depression so yeah yeah um that's crazy crazy to hear um so there are proven solutions for homelessness, um, including long-term housing assistance, which is actually less expensive than the shelter system. Mm-hmm. Um, so why does it feel like no one in power is really doing anything? <laughs> God. Right? Like we have... I wish we yeah. had someone in power to ask right. the question. <laughs> Truly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
it's and and you know I've I've had family members tell like come visit the city and you know they were here in the 70s and 80s and comment to me now that it feels bad right and and in comparison to a decade that's kind of notorious for um just the city almost face default all that stuff and today feels worse um and what's crazy about that is that it's simultaneously happening at a time where we're seeing like skyrocketing rent prices yeah um uh-huh. And seeing both of those things at the same time is very jarring. Yeah, I was gonna say like a lot of the conversation these days totally leaves out homeless folks uh, yeah. in favor of even just fighting for, um, you know, affordable housing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's shocking that in this city it is so hard to find a place to live that is within reason, um, and that simultaneously we're seeing some of the most luxury housing being built all over yeah. the place. Right. I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, it's that. And then it's also that they build this luxury housing and then they put it at like an outrageous price. It's just, yeah, it's like there a whole, there's a whole section of people that are being missed in this changeover. And it, it I mean, I, sometimes I see these buildings and see how expensive they are and I'm like, Who's who's living there? You mm-hmm. know, yeah. and a lot of the times, yeah, to be well, fair, no one. No one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No one's. Li- well, that's the thing. No one's living there. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm sorry to interject there, but um, I think I, I have one other thing I want to point out. Um, as someone who um, uh, moved recently, and um, you know, part of, and I've heard this uh, from some people, um, you know, who are sort of like in my age um, group, who are you know, so young and working, but have been working for a while. And we've seen like the shift over the years, what it was like, like I found that I, it was easier for me, someone like me to qualify and rent an apartment, you know, my first apartment when I was 25 than it was for me, you know, in my early forties, wow. mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. so much, it's not just like, Hey, let's find something like that is affordable. What is expected of you income wise is at least in New York, it's 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 very strange. You know, they'll want you to make a certain. You know, obviously, any reasonable level-headed person will look at rents and go, "Hey, what's affordable? Okay, maybe I can." That's that's in my you know range. I can afford right. this thing here. Um, landlords, um, and often through brokers, real estate agents, managing agents, um, will screen people, and they want you to make so many more times. It's uh, forty times amount the rent. of rent. Forty times the annual rent, and they'll want you to have. So high in income in order to qualify for an apartment, yeah. it's like, well, if I if I made that much money, I go look for something bigger and nicer. Now, um, they're, they're making it <laughs> yeah. almost impossible to qualify. They want you to the, the standards are impossibly high. It's, it, so I think that's part of the issue. Also, is, um, sorry, pardon the barking dog here. Um, she part of it's you know I've known um, you know families who had a lot of trouble just you know trying to find a place to live you know with their kids because and it wasn't because people weren't employed or weren't responsible or didn't have good credit it's just they weren't making an extra 20 grand more than they were mm-hmm. just like, can we get a nice little two bedroom somewhere you know just you know big enough for the three of us you know couldn't do it because it, the expectations the standards for, to just to qualify to put your to move into a place have gotten so high i don't know what the reasoning behind that is why you know you need someone to make eighty thousand dollars a year to pay for a two thousand dollar a month apartment but that that's that's a little factor in there i think that's a contributing factor right yeah and i mean the the formula i so i went through the whole real estate licensing process and like i so i've right. been on both sides of that equation and seen like how things i cannot afford as well and I think they talk about how it's like um, 
you know, so this is how much, uh, if, you know, uh, per month, your salary, you know, set aside this much for, you know, uh, rent. And then the, it's like, they're basically calculating your budget for you and budgeting a like, um, this percentage of your income should go towards rent, which is a, it's a strange thing to make that a reason why you shouldn't be able to live in that place, you know, regardless of whatever credit score history of rent payment. And it, it does, the standards are very high and very hard to meet. Yeah, and also, I mean, just based on, uh, you know, what income calculation are they using as median, uh, it, it brings in questions of districting and, um, you know, just an expected level of of income in, in the city. I mean, you can say it's affordable for one person, but, you know, for someone else, it's right. entirely different. And then there's that whole, the whole use of the word affordable housing. Exactly. It, it, it's affordable for who also, exactly. right? It, it, people who are poverty, it's still more than poverty level people who yeah. um, are in the, the shelter system can Absolutely. afford. Like people with who are working full time are still living in the shelter systems right yeah. now. And that's, yeah. that's crazy. Yeah. Very big, um, it was even a personal pet peeve of mine. I went, there's the notion out there that people who, um, you know, are in the homeless shelter or uh, receiving uh, Medicaid or any kind of public assistance, the, the notion that they're not working. Mm -hmm. right. So many people are working and, and working nine to five plus. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Just, yeah it's, you know, that's, it's, it's kind of this, um, this stereotype that really kind of needs to get shattered. Yeah, right. yeah, for sure. All right. Um, cool. All right. Last topic on the local news section. Um, so residents of a rent regulated development in Brownsville have filed an opposition with the state agency against an attempt from their landlord to introduce a biometric security system into their buildings. Uh, while some states have uh, some states in the U.S. have started building a regulatory framework around the use of this sort of technology, um, like mandatory accuracy and bias testing. Um, there aren't any rules like that in New York yet. Um, so the system in question would implement a facial recognition technology. Um, and the reporter um, for an article I got information from, from AM New York, put it really well, so I'm just going to quote it. Um, so the, the system um, would threaten to propel New York into an era where residents are compelled to give up irreplaceable personal information without the protection of government regulation. Um, so this is yet another like modern example of the battle between privacy and quote unquote security. It really mm -hmm. feels like, um, which always gives me like kind of the heebie jeebies, like, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I feel like so much has been said this past year about how much tracking is being done by various, you know, mag massive companies um, from Facebook to Google to Apple, everybody is jumping on this bandwagon. Amazon got into a bunch of trouble last year, I believe it was, for their facial recognition software, which was being marketed to uh, private citizens, which could go as far as the housing department, was being sold to police departments, um, and was proven to be uh, you know, uh, not as effective as they were saying. Um, and so this is just another step in that direction of who can control what information and collect what information and who gets to decide how their own information is being collected and shared and all of that good stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely gives me the heebie-jeebies <laughs> as well. Um, and I, I'm worried that people don't have more of a say in 
in the their own biometric information uh, being collected and shared. Yeah. And it seems like this is an instance also, you know, often the law has trouble keeping up with the tech. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, I'm, I'm, my eyebrows are raised at the fact that they're, you know, at least here in New York, that the laws aren't already, the, the tech is ahead of both. This is the tech, this tech is ahead of the law yeah. right now, and it's being implemented um, ahead of the law. And also where it's being implemented, it's being mm-hmm. implemented in Brownsville, yep. which is an area that um, the population is majority is people of color, um, lower income, working class people. Um, who I, I, I'm, I'm concerned about abuses here. Absolutely. Um, and, and people who, yeah. And um, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. Yeah. I, I'm just on that note, especially. Um, so the, the technology itself has been shown to have a tendency to be less accurate for women and for those with darker skin tones. And 80% uh, of the residents of this um, development are women and around 90% are people of color. So it's like, right. well, yeah. No laws in place to protect. <laughs> right. And it's exactly. It's biased. <laughs> it's so it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, like, and I mean it, it pairs with a lot of other technologies that are being implemented in these kind of newer, you know, quote unquote state of the art buildings that um bring up the affordability question for a lot of people. I mean, uh, mm. you know, alongside these facial recognition softwares are the, you know, keyless entry uh uh ideas where someone uses their smartphone to get in or, you know, eventually, you know, they'll scan your face using these facial recognition softwares and let you in that way, something like that. And uh, a lot of tenants are saying, look, I don't, I can't afford a phone, a, a, a smartphone. I don't have one. I don't want one. So kind of this forceful pushing of everyone to use the technology that is cutting edge, quote unquote, right. but without the proper or you know sufficient regulation to yeah and that also always brings up a question of like you know who's benefiting financially from the implementation of this stuff right like so smartphone makers in that case like sure companies who sell this technology yeah i mean not to mention is it actually safer you know like there are things where you know i i'm sure there is a point where someone will try to hack into a facial recognition system and they might be able to screw around with a lot of stuff i mean that's almost worse than someone stealing your key and getting in or breaking through a window. I feel mm-hmm. like there's always a risk. And this is a really expensive one and one that seems kind of unnecessary. It's the yeah. same thing as that advertisement for Amazon where they were like, yeah, give us um, like give give us like some sort of remote key access so that when we want to deliver your packages, we'll right. deliver it inside of your oh, front God. door. <laughs> it's like, absolutely not. <laughs> terrifying yeah it's bad and i think i think that i um for people that i know there's a lot of mixed in terms of like how people feel about giving up their personal information i have a lot of friends who are like whatever i don't care they can have it like i have nothing to hide whatever and then i have other friends and family members who have kind of raised me to just be really wary of this is stuff that you can't get back once it's out there Mm -hmm. um yeah, and just be really protective. You don't know what use it can be used for down in the future. So if the wrong person gets their hands on it, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's just scary that these people in particular at this development didn't have any say. I mean, mm-hmm. it, and it hasn't happened yet. Like mm-hmm. this opposition, we don't know what's going to happen with it, but they hypothetically could have no say mm-hmm. in the implementation of that. Well, I wonder if we'll see a massive 
division generationally as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, you Mm. know, we are in that kind of middle generation who grew up as the development of technology really took over uh, and, you know, were raised with that kind of wary um, eye towards, yeah, towards sharing your personal information online. Right. And the, the younger generation is now growing up where, that is just ubiquitous. There's yeah. no, you know, you've already shared it once you're born, yeah. pretty much. It's right. Your you, life you don't is have online. the choice. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I wonder how that will, yeah. you know, yeah. affect the conversation as well. So interesting. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, it might be time for our first music break. Yes. We, um, <laughs> we are going to take a little music break and uh, we will be back with some national news. Um, we'll be discussing everything from uh, lying to Congress to uh, justice in the Minneapolis police shooting and a new survey on sexual assault in the military. Okay. Stay with us. And take on whatever together. Whatever together. Whatever together. 
Folks, welcome back to Objection to the Rule. We just heard AM 180 by Granddaddy, and we're returning to discuss some of the national news from this past week. Namely, new happenings in the Mueller report, a massive and complicated settlement in Minneapolis, and reports of surges in sexual assault in the military. I guess we can start with uh, the Mueller report, something that's been on the nation's mind for uh, quite some time, arguably too long, (laughs) (laughs) depending on your stance. Um, In another huge turn of events, Robert Mueller suggested he was deeply disturbed by Attorney General William Barr's decision to quickly acquit President Trump of not only collusion, but also obstruction of justice charges. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi went so far as to accuse Barr of perjury and is calling for further investigation. Um, The Democrats have also subpoenaed the unredacted version of the Mueller report, which the Justice Department uh, is refusing to comply with, um, which may lead to more drastic measures uh, taken by the Democrats in both the House and the Senate. Are the Democrats barking up a dead tree at this point, though? I mean, wh- you know, what is still left to come of this process? I feel like we've seen it really run its course. Uh, I just don't know what else there can be uh, to gain from this process. <laughs> just like, <laughs> I mean, I, I similarly just like emotionally am drained from the whole thing. Um, I think I mean, it's it's. It's interesting because we're living in a world, though, where the people who are, like, committing perjury, for example, like, it seems to not, doesn't really seem to matter, right? Like, um, you know, and it's, we're watching, you know, and Nancy Pelosi can say, oh, that's perjury all she wants, but, like, is anyone actually going to move forward with anything? And if so, like, will half the members or whatever, you know, will the Republicans in Congress back her up for, like, a real crime? You know, it's. Right. I mean, we're talking about possible impeachment still. Is Is that something that's on the table? Is that something that we should be interested in that, you know, I mean, I feel like we're running around in circles a lot of the time trying to force this issue of the Mueller report while there are so many other things happening, like judge appointments across Mm -hmm. the board from the from the administration I mean, all sorts of EPA deregulations. Very scary stuff, yeah. And it feels like the focus continues to be on this, you know, this single track Mm -hmm. um, that has not only not come to any positive conclusions, um, but has actually hurt the reputation of Democrats, I think, um, as Trump's, you know, rhetoric around a witch hunt has somewhat come true Mm. (laughs) and i think i mean i think the point you made about like while the focus is on this one thing that's like is it even a thing worth focusing on all the other stuff happening behind the scenes that's really real and pretty scary and uh you know it's always a question of what sells newspapers what gets clicks on websites um is a lot of the editorial choices that um a lot of media companies make and why you know why every time like my Google, whatever homepage news updates is just this thing over and over again mm-hmm. um but yeah and like you know i mean one of the reasons i like doing the show is because i get to look at other things right yeah. and get to yeah. call out other issues that are right. happening yeah yeah i mean i feel like especially with uh the report it's 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 
essentially meant to be like a lot of of democratic politicians have been like you know talking about the current administration being like this is bad it's not good all of this stuff is happening and it's 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 like a self-fulfilling prophecy because they they keep saying no it's not good and our president keeps calling it a uh, a witch hunt but it's not he's just calling it a witch hunt because he's trying to be like it's not real the problem is that the miller report is supposed to represent this proof Right. That it's real. <laughs> right. So, which is why I feel like a lot of um, politicians and people find it hard to let go because it's supposed to be the here is the irrefutable, irrefutable proof that there's all of this bad shit going on. Right. Um, right. And it's just supposed to be like, look, do you believe me now? Um, but it's, it's right. I don't I don't know who's believing and who's not. It's yeah. a, is it like talking into an echo chamber? Like are the people who should be paying attention actually paying attention to it? And are the people who sh- should be paying attention to other things paying attention to those? Right. Right. I don't really right. know. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Well, it'll be in the news for the it next year and a half, I'm sure. <laughs> we'll have plenty more time to talk yes. about. It. Uh, <laughs> moving on to a lesser uh less of a headline from the past few years. Um, although this has certainly been a topic that has been on everyone's lips for uh, almost five years now, um, police shootings. In Minneapolis, uh, the city agreed to pay on Friday $20 million to the family of an unarmed woman who was killed by an officer when she approached his car after he responded to her 911 call. It's one of the largest settlements of a case involving a fatal police shooting in history, and the announcement uh, by the mayor and members of city council came just three days after the officer, Mohamed Noor, who is black, Somali, and Muslim, became the first Minnesota police officer convicted of murder in an on-duty killing, and one of the few nationally who has been convicted at all. Mm-hmm. A jury found him guilty on Tuesday in the fatal shooting of Justine Ruzik, excuse me if I pronounced that horribly wrong, 40, uh, who is a, u- a yoga instructor and meditation instructor. She's white and called 911 in July 2017 to report that she had heard a woman being attacked. Uh, when the police arrived in her neighborhood, Mr. Noor fired out of his car when she approached, killing her. His defense uh, says that he was uh, um, trying to protect his terrified partner uh, when, upon turning and hearing a thump from behind his car, he saw a woman outside raising her arm. Um, Yeah. The question really becomes, I think, um, whether this is justice in a case whether we are seeing uh, a, ch- a shift in the conversation around police accountability or if right. at least simultaneously we are seeing uh the same racism play out in a reverse order uh i mean you know a white woman calling the cops is killed by a black cop mm-hmm. and um is quickly right. awarded the largest settlement yeah. in history. I mean, obviously, justice is not done. She is dead, and uh, they there needs to be some recourse here. But um, in the light of recent cases, uh, is is this um, a step forward? It's, that's such a good question. Um, it is hard to look at things like this and really, it, it, I mean, it's justice in one level, right? Like it, it does feel good that something came of it in a court system where we rarely ever see law enforcement officials um, 
face legal consequences for um, physical harm or killings um, done to to citizens, private citizens. Um, and but at the same time, it's like it's, uh, you know, the amount of money in play and the the fact that he was black and the woman, it was a white woman. And it just feels like. Mm-hmm like the dynamics of like kind of like that eighties tabloidy sort of thing. Like this is the mm-hmm. perfect case, you know, to bring to trial. Right. So it's like exactly. in, in the eyes of uh-huh. the larger public in that way. Um, there was a great quote um, uh, from a civil rights lawyer and activist in Minneapolis um, who said that the fact that this is the largest known case of a police abuse settlement in the history of Minneapolis and that it's on behalf of an affluent white woman reinforces that there are two systems. There are many people of color who have not received a dime from the city in the aftermath of their loved one being shot by the police. Um, and that's just for clarification, Nakima Levy mm-hmm. Armstrong, who is a civil rights yeah. lawyer and activist in Minneapolis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, I think well said. I don't I don't know if there's much more complexity that can be added to the situation, except yeah, that we don't know yeah. if there were details of this case that made it an easier case to win in court. Also, you know, true. we don't know if there was it, it's little little. There might be little minor details. We don't know there were if what was filmed, if any of this was filmed. We don't know what the background of the officer who shot Justine was. We don't know if he had a like there were issues with this officer before you know you know there's a lot of little things that can make a, a case easier or tougher to win um but yeah it's kind of it, it really it, it it really shows the disparity it really demonstrates the disparity i mean i really feel for this victim's family but it's yeah I, it was really well put it, it really demonstrates how there's the, the, the what happens after a shooting like this it's two different experiences for mm-hmm. different potentially for two different groups of people or different experiences for many different groups of people. Right. Yeah. And, you know, of course, like just reinforces like all these things that are, that are happening. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And yeah, of course, like the victims, like it, it, this is a terrible thing that happened. And I think, um, you know, in some ways, if it, if it helps more people see that this could happen to anybody, I mean, not, not like that's a good thing, but it's like this idea that we have an entire, um, like a, a large portion of our population is afraid that the police might kill them if they're seen in the wrong light um, at any given point. And the fact that, you know, this, this could happen, it really could happen to anybody. And it, it does bring up a lot of questions of accountability and training and weapon usage by the, our, by our police system. Um, yeah. But the, the race at the questions of race at play here, are just frustrating, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, Probably a really comparable case is that of Laquan McDonald in Chicago, which sparked weeks of massive protests, and the city agreed to pay, if I remember correctly, just a sum of like $5 million after this kid was shot 16 times in the back. I mean, <laughs> if that's not, a, you know, a, right. a blatant um, disparity in treatment and... Uh, you know, an understanding of, of what what is uh, proper recourse and reparation in this in these instances, then I don't know what is. I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, moving on to the next uh, case we've got here, uh, a recent report 
showed that sexual assault in the American military has surged in the last two years, driven almost entirely by a 50% increase in assaults on women in uniform. This is all according to a survey released on, on Thursday by the Defense Department. The annual report on sexual, sexual assault in the military estimated that there were 20,500 instances of unwanted sexual contact in the 2018 fiscal year, based on a survey of men and women across the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. That was an increase of 38% from the previous survey in 2016. Women only make up about 20% of the military, but are the targets of 63% of assaults, the survey found, with the youngest and lowest-ranking women most at risk. Still, the report noted that the largest data suggests current strategies are not enough. Quote, we've thrown about $200 million at this problem for 8 to 10 years, and this report suggests it's not working, end quote. I mean, are these numbers uh, seeing a rise, um, you know... Why? Why? <laughs> what is going on? Yeah, I mean, yeah. what is yeah. happening here? Well... well yeah. Part of it, maybe, if you're saying that the the women who are re are reporting are the typically the younger, low, it says younger and lower ranking. Yeah. Younger women, I think, may being a younger generation, have grown up with a little uh, more information. Um, mm -hmm. Are taught at a younger age and a, a little bit more. It just it's more informed, more educated as to you know what is okay and what's not okay. Um, you know, women from an older generation, it, it's, um, they're, they're kind of entering adulthood with a better um, knowledge base of what is appropriate and not appropriate when it comes to um, behavior t in the workplace, professionally, what, what, you know, what the boundaries are, you know, what's okay touching, what's not okay, you know, mm -hmm. I'm simplifying this a lot, but mm -hmm. I think that could be part of it. Part of this is a little bit generational, you know, younger, you know, we, we've done a really good job um, societally of, of educating young women and young men about like what, what is okay in terms of our bodies, boundaries, person, you know, what's, okay, what's, what's, you know, education about what's considered okay behavior in the workplace, in school, on the job, you know, that's, I think that's carrying over into this. That could be part of it. Um, I don't know. I'm not in the military, but I, I think that could be part of it. It could be also, um, just because you're throwing a lot of money at a problem. I mean, how are you actually spending it? Throwing right. money out of yeah. problem doesn't mean you're actually implementing it, spending it properly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> when I hear the phrase "throwing money at something," I kind of that that's a little concerning to me because it sort of says, "Here's some money," not right. like, "Okay, <laughs> what do you need? Let's fund it." It's a little the, the verbiage there concerns me. Yeah. Like, we need some money. Here you go. Not like, <laughs> "Okay, how do we take care of it?" Right. And and I I agree that I I you know I also hope that it's a, a generational shift in terms of recognizing these issues, but you know, right. it was almost a 40% increase just from two years ago. Yeah. Um, which begs, that, that is, that, yeah. Yeah. Which is not, you know, is in a shorter term, um, bit jarring. Right. And I'm, I'm not actually sure whether that's estimated versus actual, actual reports, hmm. um, to be fair, but, um, you know, it, it brings up questions of whether if it is reported more now, the whole me too movement coming out, um, just in like a, a short term situation, and there's always questions of whether, you know, it, how much influence is Trump really having in terms of our just the day to day, you know, because there have been increases in um, documented increases in hate crimes mm -hmm. nationwide since he came to office mm -hmm. or just people just 
ver- like verbal verbiage and just yeah. all that stuff and whether this is somehow related, but I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the question, uh, there is the question of whether or not the increase in numbers of reported assaults and harassment cases is attributable to an empowerment of women, a younger generation who is more willing and informed uh, and able to speak up about these things. Um, But the reality remains, regardless, that we are seeing uh, an insane number of uh, assaults and harassment cases in the military and that they are, you know, primarily um, perpetrated against women and that the military really doesn't have uh, solutions in place yet, at least, um, to to deal with the problem. I mean, what kinds of things are possible as far as um, the the solutions they are proposing? I mean, what I've been reading is basically that they're going to set up some focus groups and try to talk about the issue with people and maybe have, uh, you know, some uh, information sessions, maybe even training um, for higher-ups, people who are, you know, sort of the Title IX people in the military. Uh, but is that effective? I mean, I, I feel like we see the same conversations happening in colleges and universities, and I don't know that we are actually seeing uh, positive results yet. What I wonder is, um, with military, it's like it's a very specific culture, yeah, like in a very mm-hmm. specific community, and I, I hate to admit it, but it's possible that the way that that, comi- that community and that culture is run, maybe it encourages this kind of behavior and these kind of thought processes, these... Uh-huh supposedly picking on what is perceived as the weaker anything like that and it's a question of i mean changing that kind of culture it's it's a lot vaguer it's Mm. harder and it's yeah harder to to figure out how to do and what it means for that community and what it's supposed to be doing anyway and yeah and personally like i you know i'm not in the military i've never been i'm not from a military family um so, I, you know, I, I, but it, the idea of it being a very specific community and comparing it to a university in that way is actually really interesting because a lot of opponents to um, – so, like, uh, one of the solutions is bringing in the, the outside legal system because right now this yeah. is done – this is all handled within the military mm-hmm. in, like, a military legal system. Um, and, you know, opponents to changing that um, say that, you know, like – Commanders understand individual cases better than anyone, and bringing an outside prosecutor could tie their hands. Um, but then, you know, in within the research for this piece, um, it's someone quoted as saying that um, commanders are basically being asked to practice law without a license. Right. Um, it's complicated. Yeah. And it takes up a lot of their time. So it, you know, and that's and that you see that at the university level too. If people who aren't lawyers trying to keep it within the system, and you know, do tribunals with students and teachers and things like that. And it's what's actually effective and, you know, who's actually being protected and all those things. Right. Yeah. Right. Everyone is just guessing at what to do. Right. They don't, yeah, they don't have legal degrees. <laughs> yeah. Like, I wish it weren't that much of a guess. I feel like it should be fairly straightforward, right. but it seems like a lot of people are just like, oh, I don't know. I guess, I guess it's well, maybe this, maybe. <laughs> well, I guess, we'll, I guess we'll be on the lookout for uh, the military to continue to, um, um, try to deal with this issue and keep an ear to the ground as to what kind of solutions they might be able to come with. I mean, you know, they have, as we've been saying, a very specific culture, uh, and maybe um, that will give way to something creative and imaginative that 
the rest of society was not able to come up with. Who knows? You know, anything's possible. (laughs) Right now, let's take another quick music break. Uh, Coming up, we'll delve into the biggest stories on the world stage between the unraveling negotiations with North Korea, the updated coup attempt in Venezuela, and closing the trade deal with China. Stick with us. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule. We just heard Yola Tengo's Ohm, and we're back with more discussion of the news. This week, the world's been witnessing attempts at power around the globe, be it, an explicit, be it explicit in the case of Venezuela's Juan Guaido inciting the people to join his coup, or North Korea testing long-range missiles despite the U.S.'s increasingly tight sanctions. 
what in the world is going on here? He I just mean, held his arms out in <laughs> confusion. I mean, we were we were just commenting a moment ago that one feels terrifying and the other feels depressing. Is this the state of politics in the globe right now? Are we seeing uh, a shift in the global, um, you know, power structure? Are are these, uh, you know, just signals of what's to come in a conservative wave pushing further into what were once uh, sort of bastions of leftist politics? And are we seeing the U.S. Um, continuing to maintain its power over the world? Or is this a signal that um, the U.S. is falling from grace, as it were? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Hate's become acceptable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I think, well, I think we've seen um, that, no, there, and I think what's become very real is that w- just with um, co- comments on what you said is, is the America, is the United States kind of losing its its kind of dominion, if you will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, there, there has been very real attempts to undermine um, the strength of the U.S. and its allies um, in the West. We know this. We know we, we do know there's been election interference. I'm not going to, you know, there's, you know, we not trying to say that the Mueller report proved anything. We know there's been attempts to interfere with our elections. We right. know that the whole Brexit issue, a lot of that, there, there was, there was, an, a, you know, we know that there was actually outside interference. A lot of it stemming from the former Soviet bloc. We know that there, there, a lot of this. There's been a lot of. Um, through use of um, social media and mm-hmm. s- other social outlets, I'll say, like print media, things like that. There have been attempts to undermine these, um, the U.S. and its its Western allies and these strong sort of um, sort of on-the-left-ish governments um, I- for a while now. There have been attempts to undermine the, and, and the kind of the social structures that these governments have put into place, the thing, you know, things that like, – governments that supported strong um, civil rights legislation mm-hmm. um social you know things like that you know um would have stood against um totalitarian regimes in places like north korea and china and and in um south america and central america where you know would have stood together against um human rights violations there have mm-hmm. been the, nations like that have been the target um of of attacks um you know from you know we, we you know, and, and attempts to un- undermine um, their political, our political processes. I'm not. Right. We're sorry. I'm not articulating this very well. No, we, we've, see, we've seen that demonstrated now. So yeah, we, uh, you know, are, are we are we falling from grace and stuff? No, but we have been. There have we've been the subtle, you know, very slowly and systematically. There have been attempts to undermine these structures. Yeah. That, and I think maybe we're seeing that really starting to play out because what you get are, you know things like the the fact that brexit even came to a vote like that got right. that far that that's what happened that's the manifestation of you know that sort of thing um you know some could argue trump being in office is the manifestation mm-hmm. of that Absolutely. you know um or or the you know he 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 allows you know a lot of hate groups to feel emboldened and to come back out onto yeah. the street and that brings a lot of angry rhetoric up and kind of has people pitted towards against towards each against each other instead of working together things like that um causes a lot of civil unrest um but yeah it kind of feels like it like we're seeing it all on the global scale now right yeah 
Yeah. And I mean, that question of whether, you know, the U.S. fall, quote unquote, like falling from grace right. or like on a global scale, all that stuff. And, and when you bring Not up. that we were very grateful. Right. Whatever, that's the money. whole. Exactly. Yes. That's the whole thing. And, and like, especially when we talk about Venezuela and South America, like. I think I've, I've talked about it on the show a little bit, just like the, you know, the, the history of the U.S., um, you know, playing chess with, oh my God, with yeah. I the, think like, there South are American like governments. Is... Three countries in South America and Central America that have not experienced right. attempted coups backed by the U.S. <laughs> right. And it's and right. And it just, you know, bringing that up again. And, and it's this idea of like. I, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm also not being articulate today, but it's, it, it's always uncomfortable, I think, to hear that the U.S., it's like when the U.S. is picking a side in this and it's just like, well, I don't, you know, I just, why, I guess, or, yeah, I don't know. Especially when it seems the international community has, uh, has not switched sides as far as, you know, generally the, uh, the international community continues to recognize the Maduro government um, apart from some uh, countries like the U.S. Um, and those pressured by the U.S., to be honest, to continue to sort of uh, usher in Guaido's presidential announcement. Right. Yeah. Mm. Well, uh, I don't know that we have a ton of time to continue to discuss it, so I think that we should leave it off there mm-hmm. and uh, look for a lot more news to be coming in the next week, as it always does. I guess that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Emily and yeah. to Aaron and to Rachel uh, for joining us today. Yeah. And yeah, thanks, guys. It's a great discussion. You can catch all of our shows on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org uh, or on whatever podcast listening app you use, um, including the Radio Free Brooklyn app. Listen up next for more independent Brooklyn media. See you next week. Grass is great when it's 1968. Join me, Jim Malone, for 50 Years Ago This